You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Northern Light United Church on November 12, 2019. The theme was Begin Again. Co-hosts for the evening were Kristen Rankin and Jim Fitzer. Live music was performed by Deborah Wood. Sometimes love is worth the pain. Yeah. So who do we have first? Who's, well, we're, who's kicking it off? We're starting out with Wendy Seabold. <laughs> Wendy was like totally born and raised in Southern California. And she's been moving north ever since. She's lived in Juneau for about five years and enjoying her newest adventure of raising her nine-month-old daughter, Avery, in this beautiful region of the Akwan and Takuquan that we call home. Please welcome Wendy. I don't think I knew what I was really getting into that first day of soccer practice and that sunny Southern California day. I had just been dropped off and the coach was trying to figure out who was gonna play goalkeeper. So we asked, or told, all of us eight-year-old girls to grab a soccer ball and line up on the baseline and boot it as far as we could. And boot it, I did. And I must have booted it pretty far because for the next 25 years, I was a goalkeeper. Here are some qualities of goalkeepers, or people who become goalkeepers, I should say. They're often very focused, hopefully. Um, They have decent aim and athleticism, hopefully. Uh, They're hopefully encouraging of their teammates. Uh, They're pretty darn bossy. And they also are kind of nuts because they they come out on purpose at people to steal the soccer ball away by diving on the ground. But I loved being a goalkeeper. Even when my teammates were sitting facing the wrong way on the soccer field, making daisy chain necklaces while the other team was barreling down at me to take shots, I still loved playing goalkeeper. It gave me a home between two goalposts. For the first eight years of my life, I didn't really feel like I was good enough at home. And so when my parents got divorced, my mom had taken the opportunity to enroll me in after-school sports, and soccer was the sport that I liked. So thanks, Mom. By the time I was a teenager, I was asked to try out for the Olympic Development Program, or ODP. And that's basically a grooming program to play on the national team. So I thought, this is fantastic, right? What a great opportunity. My problem is that I'm hella shy. Could you tell when I was standing up here? (laughs) Um, I'll never forget sitting in the car in the passenger seat, um, going to the state tryouts, and looking out at the expanse of soccer fields at this huge complex and all the hundreds of really the best soccer players in California out there. And I was absolutely terrified. But after a lot of encouragement and coaxing by the woman who had brought me to the tryouts, I finally stepped out of the car and stepped onto the field and ended up making the state team. Um, I also ended up playing at the regional level. And I kept playing at that level until it was time to go to college because, of course, I was going to go play soccer in college because this was now me. This was my identity. This was my, my thing. 
So I put together a highlight tape with the help of my granddaddy and his VHS video camera and sent off 10 copies of tapes across the country to um, some of the better soccer colleges and ended up getting recruited by some of them, um, including places like Dartmouth and Santa Clara. And uh, Santa Clara even brought me up for a recruiting trip and, and offered me a full ride to be their starting keeper, and they were number five in the country. But those of you who know me better might know why I turned down the opportunity to go to a small private Catholic college. And instead, I hopped over the bay and went to UC Berkeley. So there I was. I arrived at Cal um, about two weeks before classes started because that was when training camp was being held, um, when all the women that were probably going to play for the team showed up and they picked the final roster. And training camp was so hard. I've never seen so many people throw up and cry at the same time. <laughs> and I did actually OK at training camp. Um, I had trained for it. Turns out, though, that you can train too hard for something physically. So sure enough, about 2 thirds of the way through the week, I did some dive off to the side and ended up tearing my hip flexor, which basically kind of ended training camp for me. The trainers did everything they could to help me keep playing, but really my leg just kept getting worse. So I expected to be redshirted. And what that means in the world of college sports is that you remain on the team roster, but you don't actually play in games that year uh, so that it maintains or keeps your four years of eligibility intact. But the coach had other ideas. He decided just to cut me completely without any explanation. And so I went back to the campus early with this one other woman who was cut and was just completely devastated. You know, we felt like we had received Fs before classes even started. So luckily, though, the assistant coach, who was also the goalkeeper coach, connected me with a women's semi-professional team in the Bay Area so that I could keep playing and keep my skills up and then just come back next year to play for Cal. That was the plan. So there I was, standing on the curb in front of my dormitory about three months later, waiting to get picked up to go to practice one weekend by a Jeep Cherokee full of women in their 20s and 30s who were blasting the Friends theme song really loud like it was their battle cry. And I had never seen women like this before. They were unapologetically funny and competitive. And they were also the best soccer players I'd ever seen. They were actually some of the best soccer players the world had ever seen. This happened to be during the time of the Fantastic Five of Women's World Cup um, stuff. And so my teammates ended up being people like Julie Foudy and Brandy Chastain. And, oh, and our coach was the Stanford women's soccer coach. And our manager was, randomly, one of the top lobbyists for Philip Morris, and he... <laughs> He showed up at our soccer, he like rolled up in his black Lincoln town car to all of our games and bankrolled our team to fly around the country and play other teams, other national teams, as well as our US women's national team. So there I was, the goalkeeper behind Brandy Chastain for three hours every week at practice, and then games, of course. And what I knew about her was that she had played for the women's national team, but had been cut. And so she was playing on this women's semi-pro team to keep her skills up so that she could go back and try out again the next year. Does that sound familiar? So being on this team was an amazing opportunity. I learned a lot of things. And one of the things that I ended up learning was that I was good enough. One of the, it gave me the courage to go back and try out for the Cal team, basically. And so that's what I did. I went back, tried out for the Cal team the next year, and ended up making the team. And I enjoyed it at first. Um, and it was my identity, right? Like I was living my dream of college soccer. So it might surprise you, as it surprised me, that I went back home for the holidays one year 
And it dawned on me that the only thing people knew how to talk to me about was soccer. Here I was this person away at college, finding all sorts of things out about myself and the world, and including my sexuality, I was figuring that out even. And the only thing people knew to talk to me about was soccer. That's all I was to them was a soccer player, and I hated it. And then I started thinking about how much I liked playing soccer, but I didn't really like playing on the Cal team. I didn't like the leadership, really didn't fit my personality very well, like I wasn't into partying at the frat houses on the weekends. And so I went back to school and I quit because what I had learned was that I was good enough. A friend of mine recently told me that one of her favorite aspects of a goalkeeper is how they have broad perspective. So I'm gonna go ahead and say that for the last 20 years or so, I've been living all my different life chapters with a little bit of broad perspective. And I'll leave you with a word from my adopted Blackfeet family's language. Igakimat, or try hard, but know when to leave the field. Our next storyteller is Rick Bellog. Rick is a wolf enthusiast. For those of you who don't know, wolf stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And Rick has volunteered in six countries around the world. He also hosts woofers at his farm on Shelter Island, where he spends his summers timber framing, growing food, and building community. Please welcome Rick to the stage. We had made ourselves the unreasonable goal of building, start to finish, a round wood timber frame greenhouse in the space of one month. And here we are, today's the last day of that month, and we are scrambling to tie the last rafters onto the whole framework so that we can, in good faith, take the weekly mail boat that comes tomorrow morning out and go back to French Pass on the South Island of New Zealand. My partner Jonah is up there working and he is exhausted and near heat stroke in the stinging December sun. Timber framing is a science and an art. You start with perfectly squared timbers and you measure very precisely so you can cut a hole directly through the top of the post so that you can join a beam with a tenon that you stick exactly into that space. And round wood timber framing is exactly the same thing, except for instead of starting with a perfectly squared timber, you leave it round like the log that it grew as so that you can conserve all of the really cool features of the log, but it's a lot harder to take the precise measurements that way. You just have to imagine the square timber inside of that round log. Well then, when you do all your carving, you just assemble everything, and then you call all your friends in the area for a barn raising. And we just did our barn raising three days ago, and we called all the people in the area, which was me and Jonah and Root and Angela, who are our hosts, and that's it. There's nobody else around. So we had to figure out how to do this with just four of us. And um, we were building three walls up a slope. And the first wall and the last wall were just light enough so that we could heft the thing up 
just the four of us working together. But that middle one was three posts with a very heavy timber going on. It's kind of the center of the building, and there was just no way that we could set that up. So we had to really use our ingenuity, and Angela came up with a plan to make an A-frame and put a pulley right in it and then tie a rope to the wall and send it through the pulley and then have somebody pull on that while two of us were actually knocking over that A-frame and that would set the wall up behind us. Well, we failed miserably the first time, but the second time we actually were able to do it. And so we set it up and we tied it out and then we had a big celebration. It was a huge accomplishment and we were hugging each other and feeling really good about it. And that was really healing because the last month with the four of us together had actually been pretty difficult. Now, I love woofing because it allows you to ingratiate you, yourself to your woof hosts by adding your vital energy to their dream project. I mean, it's a, it's a recipe for success for building community. And modern humans just crave community. There's something, it touches something really instinctual inside us that kind of knows that community was the key to survival of our species. But I'm here to tell you that building community is not easy. Ruth and Angela are co-creating this food forest, eco-building project outpost out in the second growth Manuka forest uh, up slope from Fariatea Bay on Derville Island. And uh, Angela is a 35-ish butch Kiwi from Christchurch who uh, balances her can-do attitude with a healthy dose of, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, humility. And Angela is fine-featured and slight but very strong with an endearing little smile and a matter-of-fact calmness. She's from Belgium, but she is firmly rooted in the spirit of this land. Fariatea Bay, the Maori knew of this place as the place from which souls leave this world headed for the next. They go out into Fariatea Bay and out into Cook Strait. And Captain Cook himself left New Zealand on his trips from Fariatea Bay. There used to be huge trees here. And Root has taken me all over the island on her secret little trails has taken me to these really powerful spots where you can look out over Fariatea Bay and you can feel the spirit of those old trees that used to be here. But all the trees are gone. They have completely cut down the entire island for making pasture for those famous New Zealand sheep. And now the manuka, which you might know as tea tree, uh, has all come back and it's kind of like the second growth colonizer to come back in and we have gotten to know this tree intimately this month. Its hardness, its multiple curves, and inside of its bark, it's two-colored cambium. And it's just like Angela, wide streaks of darkness and moodiness <laughs> right next to lightness and laughter and, you know, we've had to sit down a lot of times because we've had quite a bit of conflict. And she apologizes and she, she acknowledges that a lot of it has to do with her cycle. 
But it's also because she's, she's anxious because she is hosting a two-week eco-building workshop right here, and she's got 12 people signed up, and she has no earthly idea how she's going to manage the logistics for bringing people to this very remote place. But today, she's all like, oh, the universe will provide, and if it's meant to be, it's going to be great. And so navigating her moods has been a real difficult thing all month. And frankly, Jonah is very ready to move on. So he's, he's standing up there, and he's tying up the very last little rafter. And he's done, and we high-five, and it's all finished, and he's headed for the shower. And I have to always do one more little thing, of course. And then I walked around to the front of the building, and I looked at it, and I noticed that one of the front posts is leaning way out. So instinctually, I just walked right up to it and straightened it. Well, we had tied all those rafters on, so my push translated to the back wall, and the whole thing tattered, and, and all of a sudden, boom, it fell down and brought the rest of the building with it, and it just collapsed in a big old pile of pickup sticks. And I was like, oh, oh. I just felt like somebody just kicked me in the stomach. I didn't know what to do. I, was, I didn't know what I was thinking. I just started running. I just... <laughs> I ran down and I ran past the food forest and I ran past Jonah's little mobile tree that he had built and I kept running downhill and I ran right past where the glowworm cliff was and we had seen the, the little creek and we ran past that and all, I, I just felt like my soul is leaving and went down to the beach and shucked off all my clothes and jumped into the ocean and started swimming the most vigorous crawl stroke that I've ever swam. I didn't know what I was doing. And just the cold water, all the thoughts of the last month came back into my head. And I'm, I'm swimming, and I'm swimming as hard as I can. And I keep going until I absolutely can't go anymore. And my soul just wants to keep going. But my body takes over and turns towards the shore. And I start swimming a breaststroke, and that should be called a heart stroke because that's the shape that your hands make when you're swimming. And I open my heart to all the pain and all the love and the collapse of our community. And I didn't know what I would find when I got back, but I was pretty sure that I would be coming back for Angela's eco-building workshop in January. <laughs> We've got Alan Cleveland up next. Alan says his socks might be mismatched. And he's been a thousand different people in a single life. But beginning again is written in his DNA. Please welcome Alan. All right, so a few years ago, uh, actually 10 years, 11 years ago, uh, 2008, December, I started bleeding. And I would get a pain in my stomach. And if I didn't make it to the toilet in the next minute or two, I would be bloody. And I know there's probably doctors in the house and pharmacists and all you people out there that do those type of things. I am a legitimate uh, DNR, right? If I fall down here tonight, anybody resuscitates me, 
I'll begin again by like punching him in the throat. <laughs> so leave me be. I, I, the pains belong to me. And so I got to this point where I couldn't go to work. I just, I couldn't. So I had no source of revenue. I wouldn't go to the doctor. And I just started making a plan that I was going to divest myself of the world and go for my little walk in the woods. And it's something I probably will do again if, you know, situations like that arise. I think I'll take a walk someday. I'm going to find my resting place. And I'll look up into the evening sky. Some say it's suicide, but I still say the world's got to have some space where a man could just lay down his head and die. And this is where I'll sing my song. This is where I'll meet my end. This is where I'll move along around the final bend. This is where I'll have a chance to hear the voice deep within. I think it's telling me to dance and to confess my sins. I'll build my fires so the tide washes them away. I'll smell the rain before it begins to fall. See, in its essence, this life inspires, so I don't need another day. I just want to say thanks for them all. And no one has to look for me. No one will know that I'm gone. I'll be no burden on society. I won't be holding on. I'm going to see my time unfold. I'll watch the setting sun while looking forward to getting old, but then to being done. I think I'll take a walk someday. I'm going to find my resting place. I'll smell the rain and look into the evening sky. Confess my sins, look into the evening sky. Lay down my head, look up at the evening sky. Then close my eyes. So it was middle of December. I hadn't been able to work. I wasn't making any money. I was running into debt, ran out of fuel, ran out of food. And I spent my time wrapped in a, in a blanket and just like I had this idea that if I could make it to the spring, then I would like put my canoe in the water and just take off and spend my time out there fishing poles, guns, living in the place that you love, doing the things that you love to do. And I had a dream one night of this woman that was standing behind me, and she had her hands on my shoulders. She was standing on her toes, and she was singing into the back of my neck. And I woke up, and, you know, of course, as a songwriter, I figured, cool. You know, I just got a song in the middle of the night. Except I couldn't remember the melody. The only thing I could remember was what that woman looked like. The next day, same thing, I'm bundled up in my blanket in my little recliner. And I hear a voice. And it's, again, we're in the, uh, in the theater type setting where I hear this voice. And so I look to my right, and there's a woman sitting, staring forward, and another woman to the right of her. And she was staring at me, singing, and it was the same woman from the night before. 
I told a friend about it and he told me to start making notes. He said, you might be getting some kind of visitation. He told me about the feminine character of God or whatever, you know. And so I started making notes about this woman. And on the third night, three nights in a row, she was there again and I was wearing this hideous, like Holocaust cloak looking thing. And we were standing behind a curtain and she was holding another cloak in her arms and it was green. And she asked me to put it on and I put it on and I'm standing now with these two hooded, you know, looking like the angel of death or whatever, but with a green one on. And I said, this feels ridiculous. And she said, but this is what they expect to see. I didn't get out to the beach in June like I wanted to, not in July. It was August before I was out there, and now I'm looking out and I'm thinking, great, you know, and I'm finally out. But I'm staring right into winter. This is not the way I want it to be. I wanted to, you know, I was supposed to die in July, catching fish and cooking on the fire. I got up one night to go to the bathroom, watered some bushes, crawled back into my tent, and on my way into the tent, that's where I decided it was, this is where I'll talk to God since I'm on my knees anyway. And I told him I was thankful. I was grateful. And that it was, uh, I just needed a little grace. The next day on the beach, the woman that I had seen in my dreams, three nights in a row, was down there and we had a conversation. Her name was Grace, the very first person I met after that prayer. She took me home and within two or three days, I quit bleeding. God is my witness. Our next storyteller is Pete Nakamura. Pete is just an ordinary 85-year-old man who moved to Juneau for two years and still hasn't found the road out. Please welcome Pete to the stage. About 50 years ago, I was a pediatrician at Anchorage at the Alaska Native Hospital. I was having a cup of coffee one morning with the director for all the health programs for Alaska, and I mentioned that I enjoyed working in Anchorage, but I really would rather be in the bush. So anyway, about three months later, I was on, or my wife and two-year-old child and I were getting on a Weems Airline plane heading 500 miles west, and you know what's there? That's Bethel. But as we were getting on the plane, I heard this voice from down on the tarmac, said, Pete. And I said, yes, and it was the director down there. He said, I forgot to tell you something. Uh, you're running the place too. Well, kind of a shock. It's not a good place to argue or have a, a conversation as you're entering the plane. So for the, any of you who haven't been to Bethel, Bethel is a big place, the area, 50,000 square miles, about the size of Oregon, Idaho, and Washington put together. 
The only road in the whole area went from the airport in Bethel to Bethel Town, not a very far distance. No running water, no sewage back then, except at the hospital and at the uh, FAA uh, station. Now, I uh, wasn't, that's not the first time I was in Bethel. The previous winter, I went there to help out when they were short of help. And I met a pediatrician. He's probably, you know, five foot two maybe, and maybe 110 pounds, but a brilliant pediatrician. Name was Dr. Jerry Winkelstein. He asked me if I'd like to uh, go on a dog sled ride. And I said, great, I'd love that. But he said, you're gonna have to help me. And help him, I did. I held all the dogs as he pulled them over one by one hooked him up, the dogs were almost as big as he was, and he told me, he said, when I say let go, let go of the dogs and jump in the sled. Well, he got as far as let, and the dogs took off. <laughs> I ran over and jumped in the sled, held onto it, and it almost fell out. As we hit the 50-gallon drum on the left, bounced over and hit a wooden shed on the right, Bounced back over to the left, snow flying all over us, and we ran into a wood pile. And then to the right, we just missed the drying racks. I looked back at Jerry and said, Jerry, where are we going? He said, I don't know. <laughs> Unfortunately, the dogs didn't know G and Ha. And so we went straight ahead. And right ahead of us, soon I looked back at Jerry and said, Jerry, uh, there's a canal ahead of us. He said, that's okay. Sure enough, it was okay, it was frozen. The dogs had to either go right or left. Well, they went to the right, heading straight for the Cuscombe River. But I looked ahead, and there's this road going over the canal with a big, kind of a, a metal uh, culvert, I guess. Or anyway, it's a, a dish. And as we, go, as we head for it, I said, Jerry, look out ahead. And he said, that's okay. And sure enough, it was okay. We had a lot of room, a little dark, but when we got on the other side of the bridge, we ran into all these big brown obstacles rising out of the ice in the, in the slough. And we hit those. And we went that way, the dogs went that way, and the sled went back over there. And as I picked myself up, I was about ready to ask Jerry what they were, but I recognized them. The people in Brown Slough dumped their honey buckets right there. Boom. <laughs> and they weren't worried because it was going to freeze. When breakup came, it was going to go down the slough, out in the Cuscombe River, back to the ocean. Well, there was a fair amount of pathology out there, as you can expect. <laughs> yep. But that's not, that, that's not the ones I'm going to talk about. Uh, the uh, first one I'll mention is uh, there was a lot of drinking and, and domestic violence in Bethel. We had a liquor store there. And there are a lot of consequences when you have a situation like that. We had this, uh, I had this young lady. I was taking care of her eyes, treating them. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. But after several days, nothing happened. She kept coming back in with the same bad infection. So finally, I, I looked into this a little further and found out that the home we had put her in had some drinking and violence. Well, this frightened her enough. 
that when evening came, she didn't sleep in the house. She crawled under the house and slept with the dogs, mosquitoes all over the place. Not a great place to treat eye infections. Now, there's a lot of trauma that's not related to drinking there, too. One day, a man came in the clinic. He had a, a, a bloody sh a shirt wrapped around the stump of an arm. Asked him, and these are true stories, by the way. I asked him, what happened to you? He said, well, I was out hunting. My skidoo flipped over. I got my arm caught in treads. And I tried to reach over, get some tools to release it, but I couldn't reach my tools. So I let it freeze, reached over, and got my hunting knife and cut off my arm. Very, very stoic people out there, but wonderful people. Another problem around too was high infant mortality. And the problem wasn't that the infants were getting sick and dying from the sickness so much. Our problem were the ones that never ever had a chance to live to get sick. Their mothers would come from the villages to Bethel to deliver on dog sleds, but they get there too late and the mothers would deliver on the sleds. Now that's just three little examples of some of the illnesses. I can't tell you an awful lot in seven minutes, but you know you have a lot of memories and memorabilia living in Bethel for two years. I just want to mention that Jerry's sled, without all the brown streaks on it, now is in his living room in Baltimore, Maryland, where he went back to be a professor at the Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital. Just to let you know, we all have memories. Thank you. I still might run in silence, tears of joy might stain my face, and the summer sun might You're listening to Mudrooms. Juno's live storytelling event on KTLO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on November 12, 2019. The theme was Begin Again. Do you have a story you'd like to share? Look up the dates and themes for our upcoming shows on Facebook or at mudrooms.org. We have Jim Hale coming up. Jim Hale was born and raised in the bush of New Jersey. In 1990, he moved west to begin again. Please welcome Jim. When I first met Dick Johnson, he was working as a, a night janitor cleaning the local office building. Uh, this was in Ellensburg, Washington. And years before I met him, Dick Johnson was a, was a tenured English faculty at the university. He was a, a tenured professor. He was a scholar, a published novelist. And then his, his life took a bad turn. And uh, his wife left him. He started drinking. And then uh, he, he stopped attending his classes. And the university had no alternative but to fire him. But that was years earlier. When I met him, Dick was back on top. He would start it again. He, you know, he had this job as a night janitor. He remarried. Uh, he and his wife had these two lovely little toddlers. And uh, Dick was beginning again. And in fact, the university had uh, rehired him as an adjunct to teach one class uh, of basic writing in the evenings. 
And that's when I came to town. I was beginning again, too. I moved from New Jersey to Washington State to take my, my first job as an assistant professor, and that's when I met Dick. And that first year was, was pretty good. I was riding pretty high, and then at the end of the year, my own life took a downturn. I, my, uh, my wife of 14 years left me. She decided she wanted out, and I, I told her, well, you know, just leave me custody of our two boys, and I will... I'll walk away, no questions asked. And she said yes, and she did, and I did. And uh, and then I started dating this uh, this woman my age uh, who I met in Ellensburg, and we had a great summer, and she was really helping me sort of keep on top. Uh, and then at the end of the summer, she went off on a camping trip with uh, some friends, and she drowned in a boating accident. And uh, uh, I went into a tailspin. So I'm... St um, I'm alone in my apartment one day, and I get a call from Dick Johnson. Dick Johnson says, look, I hear you've been having a hard time. Let me take you out for a couple drinks. So I didn't particularly feel like drinking with Dick Johnson, but I figured I'm not going to turn down this, this gesture of kindness. So we went out. Uh, we went to the local Elks Club. It was a bright, sunny day in central Washington. We walk in. The bar is dark. It's dingy. There are a few people sitting scattered around the bar room, stare at, sitting alone at tables, staring into their drinks. There are a line of guys sitting silently at the bar. It looked like, you know, happy hour at Auschwitz. <laughs> I had a beer with Dick Johnson. I said, oh, Dick, okay, thanks very much, Dick. I really appreciate the gesture. Uh, I'll see you later, and I took off. I didn't think anything more of it. The semester started. It didn't occur to me at the time that Dick had started drinking again. So I start hearing these rumors that Dick is, you know, his, his wife has kicked him out. Nobody has seen him. He stops. Well, he, well, I go into school one day, and there's all these, just everybody's just going wild with this story. Dick Johnson apparently goes to his class. And after lecturing on, I don't know, the sentence structure or some crap like that, he launches into this tirade on his personal problems, which he punctuates by pulling his pocket knife out and waving it at the students, saying, sometimes I don't know whether to kill myself or somebody else. <laughs> well, that was the end of you know, Dick Johnson's affiliation with the university. It was banned from the campus. And I hear about this, and I say, the poor guy, I hope he's getting help. And I decided, you know, maybe I should, you know, try and find him, make sure this guy's getting help, because obviously he was, he, was, he was down on his luck. So I tried to find him. Well, he wasn't at home. His wife had kicked him out. I hear from some acquaintances that he might be holed up in this one house that's vacant but is owned by his brother. So I go there. I, I bring a bag of groceries for the guy. And uh, I knock on the door, nobody answers, but I hear him scuffling around inside. So I leave a note, I say, Dick, look, if you need some help, give me a call. So a week goes by, I'm sitting in my office in the university, and Dick shows up in the door. He looks haggard, he looks gaunt, he's, you know, he's disheveled, his hair's crazy. So I say, he says, what do you want? I said, well, Dick, I'm just, you know, trying to help, you know, if you need a hand. He said, I don't want your sympathy. I said, I don't want your cliches either, Dick. So if you need a hand, 
give me a call, and he stomps off. And about a week later, I get a call from him. He wants me to give him a ride, 30 miles south to, um, to Yakima uh, to help him check into the Yakima Psychiatric Ward at the Yakima General Hospital. So I drive him down there. It's a wild ride. All along the way, Dick is telling me this wild story about the history of Ellensburg with, you know, with adulteries and floods and miscarriages and droughts and blights and, you know, really kind of wild stuff. Dick was a, he had a big mind. He had a lot in there and he'd gone off the deep end and it was pretty ugly. But I didn't think Dick was violent. Uh, nothing in, had ever suggested to me that Dick was violent. So I give him a ride, and then, you know, he, gets a, he checks himself out of the hospital, and he starts showing up here and there. He gives me a call. You, I lend him some money. I give him a ride. He comes by the house with gifts for the kids, like horses' teeth and desiccated rat skulls. I mean, <laughs> cool stuff, but not your normal, everyday childhood birthday presents. And then Dick, I, I stop hearing anything about Dick. Then I find out he's arrested. He tries to rob a couple of students at knife point. I go to visit him a couple of times in jail while he's waiting for his trial. And then I go to the trial, the court, the day he's tried, and uh, he's giving his defense, which is he's trying to tr tell the judge that he was trying to sell the students the knife. And the judge jumps up out of his chair. He leans over Dick and he starts waving this imaginary knife in Dick's face saying, what, you were trying to sell them the knife like this, Dick? Like this? <laughs> the, the courtroom just goes crazy. And the judge is whacking on the gavel, shut up, shut up. Well, Dick was found guilty. <laughs> He was found guilty, and uh, he was, the judge commuted his sentence to time at the Spokane Psychiatric Hospital. But that day in court, as the bailiff was leaving, leading Dick out of the room, Dick looked back at me with this, this hopeless look on his face. And that was the last time I saw Dick Johnson. Next, we have Danica Vandenberg. Having moved to Juno on a whim last year from the sunny south of Spain, Danica is an avid creator with a penchant for laughing and last minute direction changes. Please welcome Danica to the stage. I think it's okay. So, trust. One of those pesky little characteristics that I'm sure, I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say that everybody thinks is a very important part of a healthy relationship. Yes? Yes. Especially the really important relationships like your family and your very bestest, closest, dearest friends. And I think it's safe to say that maybe if that trust gets like demolished, you might try to like work things out. All right, we'll come back to this. So I lost my mom roughly 15 years ago. 
she's not dead. I just kind of lost her. She was my bestest, closest, dearest friend. We were super close. My mom and dad got a divorce when I was 11, and we left Utah. We were like, bye, Dad. When my little brother moved down to Texas, my mom and I were like, okay, like Gilmore Girls, like that close with a little boy. But he's inconsequential. He was only two. So here we are living our Gilmore Girls life, and then somewhere in my mid-20s, I just lost her. She didn't care about my stories anymore. She couldn't remember them. She wasn't really even interested. So I just stopped sharing them. So my mid-20s, my early 20s was like the early 2000s. So Christmas 2004, she checked herself into a rehab facility. She was an alcoholic. Loneliest Christmas of my life. And I'm sure she was lonely too. But I remember thinking, okay, it's great. This is great. She's getting some help. Ooh, we're on the up and up. I'm going to get my bestest, closest, dearest friend back. Naive Danica. So, uh, where are we now? 2004. Let's fast forward to 2012. So there's a lot of rehab, a lot of detox, a lot of, yeah, I'm doing great. Where's mom? Oh, she's in rehab. Oh. All right, 2012, October 29th. Hurricane Sandy is barreling down on the East Coast, and my mom had a house in this cute little coastal town in Connecticut called Milford. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Adorbs. And she was a block away from the beach. And I was, I had moved to Hawaii at this time, and so I was working in the federal building in Honolulu thinking, God, this storm is, why is everyone's talking about this storm? Looked it up, holy shnikes, and uh, reached out to everyone I knew. No one had heard from my mom in several days. And um, by the time I reached out to the police for a wellness check, it was too late. No, they had evacuated Milford. Um, craziness was ensuing. They were like, we can't go in there until afterwards. And I was like, oh, okay. So needless to say, I did not get a lot done at work that day. And um, when I did finally get in there, nobody really told me the whole story. So the watered-down version is that she was laying on her floor in a puddle of her own blood. And she had been there for four days, drinking and doing things that you do in days. And it was just the nastiest room you can maybe think of. She was non-responsive and they took her away. Up to this point, the hardest, toughest day of my life was calling my little brother and telling him, I think mom's dead. What the F do we do? And um, she wasn't. <laughs> so needless to say, she got out, very angry at me for doing the wellness check. She was very embarrassed of her situation. and. Um, Weeks went by and she was drinking again and I had decided that I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, that the best thing that I could do was to just kind of let her die, like in my head and in my heart. So I talked to all of her friends and her closest, dearest, bestest friends and I got all of their support. And I, and I had it all figured out in my head. And I was leaving work, and I was going to call her. And I was walking to the bus 
stop and um, nothing ever came out like it was supposed to. (laughs) And when I was talking to her, I was explaining to her how I just couldn't do it anymore and if this was her path, it just had to be without me. Um, I just collapsed on the curb. And it was like, I just, the weight of all the tears I didn't want to say on the phone and the confusion and the rejection because she didn't give a And she was angry at me for being so selfish and she didn't understand that her drinking could possibly affect anybody else. And when I hung up, I remember just crying, 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 and feeling the sun on my legs, and remember crying so long that the palm tree shadow had shifted to the other side, and I missed my bus. (laughs) So I walked home crying and crying, and I cried for days, and I really just kind of grieved the loss of the whole package, the loss of my mom, the loss of my bestest, closest, dearest friend, and I kind of just got to breathe again, and um, that was seven years ago, and our relationship has evolved, and we talk almost every day now. Um, She still struggles, and I don't trust her at all, so how can you have a relationship when there's no trust? And while I have managed to surround myself with some amazing, beautiful, best, close, dear, lifelong friends, there's no way that any of them will ever be able to fill the void left when I had to say goodbye to my bestest, closest, dearest friend. And that's really who I was saying goodbye to on the curb that day. We have John Harley coming up. John's love of wilderness first brought him to Alaska almost a decade ago. He lived in Fairbanks for a while and then decided to give the real Alaska a try and moved to Juneau. During his adventures in the backcountry, he's experienced a number of close calls, but none closer than the one he's going to tell you about now. His mom has never heard this story before, and John suspects that when she does eventually listen to it, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. Please welcome John. When I first moved to Alaska, my mom was terrified that I was going to be eaten by a bear. I'm not exaggerating when I say that she has a Google News Alert set up for bear activity in Alaska so that she often finds out about trash bears in Douglas before I do. (laughs) Much to her horror, I quickly became involved in activities that were, from a risk perspective, much more dangerous than bears. I summited mountains, skied glaciers, and climbed frozen waterfalls, but it was pack rafting that captured my heart and imagination. For those who don't know, a pack raft is an inflatable boat that you can roll up and carry with you on your back over ridges and mountains until you find a stream worth floating. Alaska is the perfect place to pack raft. Our limited roads and unlimited rivers make the pack raft a necessary tool for exploring untouched wilderness. My first pack rafting trip was on the ominously named Moody Creek. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I wore rain gear and a bike helmet, and I borrowed my friend's PFD and paddle and hiked over the mountains near Cantwell. It was a beautiful day in the interior, 
classic summer day full of unlimited light, unlimited optimism, and unlimited mosquitoes. And despite ending the day with mild hypothermia, the stoke was high. I had to wait until my second year to start my, or I had to wait a whole nother year to start my second pack rafting trip. I started looking for a suitable river. Moody Creek was graded at class three. It's moderately difficult, and to me it had seemed easy, almost consequence-free. So I set my sights on the Nanana River, just outside of Denali National Park. The Nanana is rated at class four. It's difficult. It's also roughly 200 times larger than Moody Creek. It was also, as we would learn later, at flood stage. <laughs> I can't recall if we knew any of these things going in, or if, like so many warnings issued to 20-something-year-old boys, it simply glanced off of our mantle of perceived invincibility. We put in on the river, myself and my two friends, we'll call them Danny and Andrew, because those are actually their names. <laughs> and we set off towards the canyon. It was Andrew's third time in a pack raft, and it was my second time. Danny, who had a bit more pack rafting experience, decided instead to pilot a whitewater canoe, which he had never been in before. None of us had ever floated this river, and none of us had ever seen the canyon. Danny capsized his canoe almost immediately. Andrew grabbed him, floated over to the shore, and I grabbed his boat. We had a laugh and then set in again. Danny flipped a second time. I capsized as well, but I managed to self-rescue. And once we regrouped and ended the yard sale, we, we, we high-fived and congratulated ourselves. We were getting pretty good at this. Danny flipped a third time at the entrance to the canyon. As I braced against his boat, preparing to clip it to mine and tow it to shore, I felt my pack raft being lifted over the crest of a huge wave, and I was staring down into a giant vortex of white water. I flipped my boat, and the full weight of the river pressed me down to the bottom and held me there. I'm not sure how long I was underwater. In my head, it felt like minutes, but in reality, it was probably about 10 seconds. But seconds can stretch into hours when your only thought is air, air, air. I finally surfaced, gasping, and it was all I could do to crawl back into my my pack raft. What had once seemed like this, this unsinkable boat now seemed like an inflatable bathtub, and I bounced and careened down the rest of the rapids. I crested over another wave, dropped into another hole, and was again sent underwater. I surfaced this time underneath my overturned boat in a strange bubble where I was protected from the roar of white water all around me. I could breathe, but I couldn't move. Somehow my arms had become trapped. I was pinned in a line that I had clipped to the end of my boat, and my river knife, which lay on my PFD, whose sole purposes in life are spreading peanut butter in this exact situation, was desperately out of reach. Something snapped on the bottom of the river, and for a moment I was held in place, frozen in the current like a barnacle. The line snapped, I heard a pop and a hiss, and then everything went dark again as I was thrown back into the vortex. When I finally surfaced, I did, couldn't see my boat, my paddle, or my friends. I drifted listlessly over to the side of the river on a gravel bar. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. My arms were mush, my brain was mush, and I just laid there on, the, on that gravel bar with the cold water slapping my ankles. I couldn't stay here, though. I knew above me somewhere there was a road, and the road equaled help. That was as complex a thought as my lizard braid could come up with. Road equals help. So I started climbing the steep scree slopes on the side of the river. I sent boulders careening down below me into the water, but I kept climbing and climbing, knowing that the road was up there somewhere. As I neared the top of the cliff, I stopped and surveyed what I had just come up. The cliff looked impossibly steep, 
and the water from up here was quieter, but it was still cold, gray, and menacing. And on the other side of the river, the road meandered through the... I had to stop and think about this for a second. Cliff, river, on the other side of the river was... Yeah, I was on the wrong side of the river. At some point during my float, presumably during the part where I wasn't actually doing any of the floating, I had passed under a bridge, and now I was on the wrong side of the river to, to reach the road. Not knowing what else to do, I started walking downriver. I started bushwhacking through some alders, and I realized how ridiculous I looked, a thousand feet above the river, wearing a dry suit and a PFD, with absolutely no idea where I was and no idea where I was going. I started seeing fresh bear sign, steaming scat piles and fresh digs, and then I realized how utterly ridiculous it would be after all I had just been through if I ended up proving my mom right and being eaten by a bear. <laughs> I eventually ran into my friends about a mile downriver. They were on the other side with both of the pack rafts. The canoe was lodged in a particularly nasty rapid on my side of the river. I schwacked down to it and managed to get a hold of one of the bow lines and pull it out of the river. I sat there with the whitewater canoe on one side and I came to the terrifying realization that if I wanted to end this fiasco, I was gonna have to paddle the whitewater canoe across the river to rejoin my friends. I'd never been in a whitewater canoe before. I also didn't have a paddle. <laughs> to me, this didn't feel like just starting over or getting back on the horse. <laughs> the first horse had nearly killed me, and now I had to get back on, on a meaner and bigger horse that was also actually a zebra. Also, I never learned how to ride horses in the first place. <laughs> I don't know if it was courage or stupidity, but I got in that whitewater ca canoe and I prepared to swing my arms like a surfer and paddle myself across the river. As I was about to do so, a group of veteran kayakers came from around the river corner and joined me in my little eddy. They looked at me and looked at my friends. And then with all of the wisdom, grace, and well-deserved condescension that seasoned outdoorsmen can offer, they said, you, you boys need some help? <laughs> yes, yes we do. This is KTO of News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on November 12, 2019. The theme for the evening was Begin Again. Proceeds went to the Healing Hand Foundation. Special thanks to Laura Kurt, Northern Light United Church, COPA and the Rookery for supporting the event. And to Lucid Reverie for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. Join us for our next show on Tuesday, December 12th. The theme will be WTF. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Bus, Melissa Griffith, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, and Jim Fitzer. I'm Rich Moniak. Have a good night. <laughs>